2: These are not money-making gambits. These are not like, you're not going to score a giant advance. So the key criteria becomes who can do a good job with this and make this a thing that's worth, it's a hobby, almost.
3: I I don't like that word, but...
2: I said almost.
4: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn.
2: And
1: I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. How are you? I am swell, thank you. The movers took most of our stuff away a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. So I'm recording from an empty, echoey apartment. In other words, thoughts and prayers to our producer, Cameron.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say, again, this is an audio medium and not a visual medium, but as we are on the Zoom call... I'm looking at June in the box of the Zoom window, but then also inside another box in an attempt (laughs) to contain the echo, which is quite funny. Um, But anyway, so who did you talk to this week? Whose voices were we hearing?
1: So I spoke with Rob Walker. uh, That was his voice that we heard at the top of the show and Joshua Glenn. Rob is a journalist. He actually worked for Slate uh, many years ago. And Josh earns his living as a consulting semiotician. But I wanted to talk to them because they often collaborate on what I hope they wouldn't be insulted to hear me call arty projects. Mm -hmm. In many of them, they approach a bunch of writers and ask them to compose a short essay, usually as little as 500 words, about a particular type of object. So I contributed to their series, Movie Objects. Mm. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. But they've done a whole bunch of these. uh, And they'll talk about some of that in the interview. But they also have a new book coming out. It's coming out on August 23rd. It's called Lost Objects. And 50 writers talk about significant objects from their life that they no longer have in their possession. Um, I was just curious about how they manage that kind of anthology project. Which obviously gives them a great deal of artistic satisfaction, Mm -hmm. but is really not a money-making venture.
4: That's fascinating. I I can't wait to hear more about their work. Um, But before we get into that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week?
1: So as I mentioned before, Josh is a consulting semiotician, and I have to admit that I laughed when he first described his day (laughs) job that way, but that really is how he earns his living. So... I asked them both to tell me more about what their day jobs entail. And I asked them whether, after having collaborated together on various projects for many years, each one feels brand new or if they feel like they're all extensions on a common foundation.
4: Well, that sounds fascinating. So, listeners, if you are not a Slate Plus member but want to listen to the rest of this conversation, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gap Fest and the Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com workingplus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Rob Walker and Josh Glenn.
1: Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn, welcome to Working. First, I would love you both to introduce yourselves. Rob, do you want to begin?
2: Sure. Thanks for having us, June. Uh, My name's Rob Walker. I'm a writer, journalist, columnist based in New Orleans these days. I write a column called Branded for Fast Company, and I have a newsletter, The Art of Noticing, based on my most recent book.
3: And I'm Josh Glenn here in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a writer and consulting semiotician.
1: So there we go. Consulting semiotician. I wanted to make that question open ended because I'm very conscious that you both do a lot of different things. Before we start talking about your newest project together, Lost Objects, I'd love to hear your secrets for combining different types of work. Um, Rob, let's maybe begin with you. Do you have a strategy for shifting from one kind of task to another?
2: I'm actually terrible at this. I think Josh will give you a better answer than I can. But uh, I'm a very sort of improvisational scheduler. I don't. I mean, I try to add enough interesting stuff that keeps the variety. I mean, I'm very. Int- it's a very conscious decision to have a lot of things going on. It's not. It's not an accident. It's the plan. Yeah. I'm just apparently wired this way where I need lots of different things to be uh, going on and to be juggling them.
1: And they're all things with deadlines, I know, too. Like, you're not sort of making gardens. You're like something that has to be turned in or show up at a certain time for a class or whatever.
2: For sure. And the stuff that I do, the stuff that never gets done is the stuff that doesn't have deadlines. And that's why, that's another good reason to have a collaborator, which Mm. I'm sure we'll get to.
1: Indeed, we will. Uh, Josh, do you follow the teachings of any particular productivity guru?
3: No, although I do use a scheduling software called Things, which comes out of that world of getting shit done, um, mm-hmm. that whole philosophy, but, which I've never actually read any of. But I like their software for uh, organizing myself. And I like the way that it makes you not just, uh, as they say, prioritize your schedule, but schedule your priorities so that those creative projects like Rob was talking about that might be unremunerative, that might not have a deadline, that might not have nobody waiting to ever see them, You make sure that you are, if you don't do them every day, you're making a conscious decision not to do them rather than just letting them get lost under the paperwork on your desk.
1: Right. Well, and I'm also conscious having participated in one of the projects you've done together where, you know, when you're working with a lot of different writers, when you're putting together an anthology, whether it's a book or, you know, a website project, you've got to keep however many people on schedule too. Uh, So there's, you know, it's not just keeping your own schedule. You also have to remind, "Uh, June, you said you were getting me this on the first and it's the fifth.
3: I learned a lot from Rob in that regard when we first started working together as far as creating a spreadsheet for every project. (laughs) And the spreadsheet doesn't necessarily help you be good at nudging people. I'm very good at nudging people just by being shameless. And especially as I'm not asking, I'm not offering to pay anybody very much for any of these projects, but the spreadsheet and the kind of just sort of being able to have a a bird's eye view of the project and where it's at at any moment and what still needs to be done is incredibly helpful. And I'm sure I've surpassed Rob at this point in my use of the spreadsheets.
1: Yeah. Rob Walker looks like a hippie, loves a spreadsheet.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Josh gives me so much credit
2: for it's Google Sheets. It's not like I invented some crazy. uh...
3: (laughs) (laughs) And June, to, to answer your original question, many years ago, I think probably back in high school, Like Rob, I've always been a kind of overcommitter. say yes to everything, have a million ideas, and that's the plan, not an accident. I discovered something that I more recently named the virtuous circle of procrastination, which is where if you have enough things going, uh, some of them might have deadlines, some of them might be more creative projects. If you have the exact right number of those things going at any one time, on any given project, when you feel like procrastinating on something you have to do, you have something else to do that's virtuous. You're never just watching TV or, you know, Mm -hmm. laying in a hammock, although I do those things also. But throughout the workday, I can kind of go from, uh, you know, oh, boy, I have this big deadline that's due tomorrow, but I really don't want to work on it right now. I know I'll work on this project with Rob for an hour and then come back. So I call that the DCP. That's my secret of productivity.
1: That is pure genius. So Lost Objects is the latest in a long series of collaborations that you two have done together. I also know that you've both collaborated with other people. First, tell our listeners about the work you've done together. Uh, and then
3: I want to know where this book originated. In the year 2000, I was publishing a magazine called A Hermana, which was sort of my life's work. It was the most important thing I'd ever done. I still wish that I could have kept it going to this day. It was It was what I was born to do, but it was going bankrupt. And uh, I was very aware at the time that, you know, I needed to figure out what to do next, but I had these two big interests. One was kind of around material culture. I was fascinated by branding and marketing and advertising and the products of material culture, you know, uh, and uh, packaging and all these kinds of things, but not as a marketer or a packaging person or even a business person. I didn't want to make these things. I don't want to get rich off this stuff. I just was interested in it. I also had an interest in journalism, uh, which I'd been doing for some years at that point, but I felt like in the journalistic world, you were supposed to kind of be critical of all that stuff. You had to kind of make fun of it and be snarky about it. The sort of paradigms that back in those days were like Naomi Klein or even Dave Eggers, Mm. these folks who were sort of anti-materialist, if you will, very snarky and skeptical about that stuff and concerned about selling out. I never felt that way. I didn't feel like I had bought into anything, so I didn't worry about selling out. I didn't, it was kind of a weird in-between position. I didn't know how to bring those two streams together, the journalism and the fascination with material culture. And then uh, Rob started publishing his column at Slate called Ad Report Card. I think, did you start that column, Rob? I did. So Ad Report Card, you remember, it, June, um, was reviewed brand marketing campaigns from a perspective that wasn't either one of those extremes. Right, Rob wasn't trying to help branders be better at branding no. by writing. It was stuff. for
2: people. It was for regular people. Yeah. yeah.
3: But nor were you being snarky and saying, look at look at these guys trying to manipulate us and you know I, I hate yeah. them. There might have been a little bit of that now and then, but it was basically like you're almost like an alien anthropologist. That's how I, I think of it. Someone, an anthropologist who beamed to our planet and was like, wow, look what these guys do. Let's, I'm just interested in it. I don't have a judgment on it. I'm just it's quite I find it fascinating. So that merging of the streams, as I like to call it, was an ideal for me that I I still didn't figure out to do for a number of years. Uh, But fast-forwarding ahead, uh, after I'd done a book, a short book, um, in 2007 called Taking Things Seriously, which was uh, real-life stories that I asked people to tell me about objects that were meaningful and important to them in their lives, usually very surprisingly ordinary objects that had a great story attached somehow. And Rob's book Buying In, which was kind of the distillation of his Consumed column, which is amazing column from the New York Times magazine that came out after Ad Report Card. Our books came out around the same time, and that kind of merged our streams, where some, somehow the the fact that our books are both out at the same time kind of brought us together. Maybe, Rob, you want to tell the story from this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, what happened, I had this uh, sort of side project that wasn't going anywhere, this concept of, I was interested in objects, as Josh Uh, was, and I had this idea that people talk about how the meaning of objects comes from their story, and that's where the value comes from. And I was interested in, like, well, could you measure that, and what would be a way to measure that? And the absurd idea, the funny idea was, what if you had people just completely make up stories? You picked random objects and had people invent totally fake stories, and then auctioned them. So that would be the actual measure of value. Now, I spent a good chunk of time not doing anything about that idea, and then Josh's book, Taking Things Seriously, came out, and I, was, I knew who Josh was, I knew what the Hermonaut was, and I knew his work from elsewhere, but I didn't know him. And I thought, well, uh, am I going to look like I'm just biting this guy's <laughs> whole act by trying to do this project, which, I, again, I want to emphasize I wasn't doing anything. I was just sort of telling my wife about it. And so I reached out to Josh and said, like, I I sort of went under the guise of like, hey, I don't want to do this if you think like it's uh, too close to what you've done. But maybe if you're interested in it,
3: we could team up. Bear in mind, this is a guy I've been fascinated with and like (laughs) sort of trying to make my career more like his for 10 years when he reached out to me. So I was very excited.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that was uh, and then Josh was like, yes, he was enthusiastic. And then it sort of went from there. And it was very exciting very quickly because. And here's to get to sort of some, p- some payoff for your listeners here, <laughs> that one of the things that I quickly realized and that I learned from that was that Josh was a great collaborator, partly because of what we had in common, but also because of what we didn't. There were a lot of things that Josh can do that I can't do. He's a very categorical thinker and good at rules and parameters and definitions and all this stuff that, like, I'm the exact opposite of that. My whole career is based on blurring lines, on, like, fucking up categories. <laughs> but Josh could do, could think in this systematic way that I was, like, I couldn't do it. I still, like, to this, like, Josh, you can talk about fossils and totems and, and and all of that stuff that, like, I couldn't do that in a million years. And it helped us shape that project, which migrated to eBay. I mean, we essentially did what I just described, as mm-hmm. we recruited over 200 writers over time. It went on for years online and became a book and was much discussed. And we still, to this day, hear from marketing professors and whatnot who want to cite our data, which I find hilarious.
3: It's become a meme, the Significant Objects Project, where people just kind of quote, you know, these two, they, they call us like anthropologists, basically, which we aren't. But, you know, these two scholars studied, you know, how you can add more value to objects through storytelling. And it's, you know, 2,000 percent increase in value. And, you know, as though we actually did a real science experiment when it was really always a cheeky somewhere between literary, economic and anthropological, you know, endeavor sort of shaped like an experiment, but very loose and messy.
1: I just want to point out that in your most recent book, Lost Objects, you refer to yourselves as two (laughs) non-credentialed pseudo-anthropologists. So, yeah, that feels very accurate. I appreciate that.
4: We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Rob Walker and Josh Glett. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Rob Walker and Josh Glenn. So where did Lost
1: Objects come from?
3: After our Significant Objects book came out in 2012, we rested on our laurels for a few years (laughs) and we went off and did our own different projects that didn't involve each other. But we missed each other and um, I think it was probably Rob's idea to come back together and start running a series of themed um, volumes of non-fiction stories about objects. So sort of related to my Taking Things Seriously book, but we were going to have themes like, the, his first idea was political objects. This was right after the 2016 election. Mm. So he thought this would be a good way to get you know, solicit 25 stories and people ask them about political objects they might have in their lives. Uh, whatever that might mean to them. It doesn't have to be a campaign button. It could be more abstract. So we got 25 amazing stories and we just went from there. We did illicit objects. We did talismans. We did um, this and that, and finally, um, one of the ideas this is what happened uh, for each of those themed volumes, we would approach writers and ask them to uh, if they had an object that fit our theme and every single time, at least two or three of the people we approached said, "You know what, I used to have the perfect object. it would have been so great, but i can 't write about it because i don 't have it anymore, so i can 't take a picture of it for you i don 't it 's not in my possession and that was intended to be a a conversation closer, those mm-hmm. comments. Mm-hmm. But for Rob and I, it started to become a conversation beginner because we would say, well, how did you lose it? You know, And how do you feel about losing it? And why are you still thinking about it? You know, you're know, t- you talking about something that was not really valuable and you lost it 30 years ago, but it's still fresh in your mind. Right. Why is that? And we all have that, right? We all have at least one of those objects. Yeah. So that became a really interesting way to go down. But the question was then, how do you illustrate it? If the object isn't, isn't there anymore, how can we illustrate it? Which then we came up with the idea of, well, let's hire illustrators. To and by higher I mean almost barely not pay at all. But <laughs> let's cajole illustrators into illustrating these stories. So that's where the Lost Objects project came from. I just
1: have to just take a moment just to say what a fantastic concept it is. I mean, partly because I am in the process of moving, and mm-hmm. I am just so conscious of you know the entire process is about making decisions about what you're keeping but it's not really about what you're keeping it's about what you don't want to regret losing and when I think of you know I unlike you guys I don't spend a lot of time thinking about objects qua objects but if I give myself that kind of prompt I think about like this thing that I cannot let go of of one time decades ago now I, we were overseas on a on holiday and it started to rain very hard went into a store they only had one, umbrella left the woman right in front of me got it and i still think of that umbrella it's crazy that's the only thing i remember about that vacation that was not the center of that vacation but
3: you never even owned it no that's an that's a very significant object it was never even in your grasp i
1: know and i refer to it all the time like when i feel myself getting a bit obsessed with something i'll say to my partner oh that's the beeps umbrella you know like it is uh, so it's an absolutely genius concept so i I must give you some praise for that
2: what I remember being excited about was what you're talking about is like, yes, that is something new under the sun of like the significance of objects you don't like the most significant object is the one that's gone. Yeah. And that was new territory for us. And I was super excited that we were going to have to use illustrators, that that was the only way to do it, because I knew a lot of illustrators. I had done other projects that involve visual people. So had Josh. And th- so this was a new sort of set of territory that we could explore.
1: Mm hmm. I definitely want to talk and ask you about the nature of the way you work with the writers and and illustrators before. I just want to uh, try to insert some structure just by asking about the book itself. Um, did you take the book out to find a publisher like as a concept? did you collect some essays first? How did that sort of businessy part of it work out
3: so we have a couple hundred stories on, on my website, Hilo Bra, that we've published through this Project Object series, including yours, June. And we did pitch it around through an agent and directly to publishers. We wrote, Rob's very good at writing um, book pitch letters, something else I learned from him. Uh, we didn't find much success until a really excellent, small, independent art house press called Hat and Beard in Los Angeles said yes. However, this was right before COVID happened. And basically their They said they said yes. We were sort of signing the contract, and then their um, business model kind of fell to pieces, and they had to lay everybody off. And it was so we kind of just cooled our heels for over a year, I think, um, until they were sort of ready to ramp back up again. But yes, we. Neither of us really wants to be in the business of self-publishing, even though I, that's kind of the background that I'm from, mm-hmm. publishing zines and things. I, mm-hmm. I believe in DIY publishing and I like doing it, but it is a lot of work, especially the printing and the distribution and all these things that you don't want to deal with the marketing. So um, certainly working with Rob, all of our projects, in, anything that turns into a book has to involve a real publisher. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I, the only thing I would add to that is that, we, well, obviously these are not money-making gambits these are not like you're not hoping for a, you know you're not gonna get it, score a giant advance So the key criteria becomes who can do a good job with this and mm-hmm. make this a thing that's worth it's a hobby almost.
3: I don't, I don't like that word but
2: I said almost <laughs> but uh, but who's gonna do a good job and Josh had the hat and beard connection I forget how exactly but we did try a bunch of places. And there was, you know, there was a lot of interest, but, you know, not a lot of let's do a deal interest, just Mm -hmm. a lot of like, what a great idea and what a great lineup of. And we had a pretty good, you know, we we went out with it as a complete, I should clarify that we went out with it as 50 stories, 50 illustrations that had been, that we could show people.
1: And had they, so so they'd already been on
3: the
2: high, low, high, com, Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that definitely for some publishers they don't want to do something that's already been published that's already mm-hmm. been out there and also other publishers there seems to be a rule of thumb in the publishing industry that collections of essays by different authors don't sell well you either want a, a book written by a single person or a collection of essays by a single person you, what you don't want is a collection of essays by different people yeah so that was a little bit of a drawback
1: gotcha well and let's talk about that though because it's not you know first of all there are 50 50 essays 50 illustrations Illustrations are illustrations, but you know when you say essay, that's a very broad category. These are very short pieces. I actually didn't count how many words your limit is, but this is a very specific kind of writing form that you guys typically work with Um, in all of your object projects. How do you find people, because, you know, and that's a very specific format. How do you find that Rolodex, or how did you hone that Rolodex that it's like these are people who I think probably could write four or five hundred words in a in a sort of format that people would want to read
2: i think that there is no answer to that i think it's (laughs) trial and error i think and one of the things josh and i haven't so we have things where we're complementary and things where we're different and things where we have a lot in common and one of the things we have in common is that i think we're both pretty voracious reader slash fans like we're interested in other writers Mm -hmm. And we're interested in seeing what will happen. So you don't know. And that's part of what makes it interesting. It's like, I don't know if June Thomas will be able to come through with 450 excellent words. In this. But I, kinda, I mean, I kind of know. And we've had, first of all, we certainly had people turn us down. Mm. Um, that's part of the trial and error. And then we've had, you know, on much more rare occasions, we've had things that didn't work out uh, where we learned that someone uh, is actually not uh, capable <laughs> of doing 450
3: words.
1: What kind of editing do you do and how have you developed the specific editing skills for this specific weird format?
3: If you have a platonic ideal of the word count in your head, you also have a little bit of a sense of, you know, what it should look like, how it should feel like. For example, if you only have 500 words to play with, you cannot do a lot of throat clearing, as they say. Right? You can't let the writer start off by saying, the history of the bowling ball is quite fascinating. It began in 1834, you know what I mean? And then only finally after... 150 words get to their own bowling ball and what it meant to them. So there's a lot of that kind of thing there. Right at the top, you can just say, okay, I can see right away from your first draft that you did too much of that. Can you please try again? But I will say that I don't think either of us want to do a lot of very close you know, line editing with these writers because we trust them. These are all writers that we okay. like. As Ron said, we're fans of theirs. So a good editor shouldn't have to do a lot of work. Uh, you know, If you hire the good writer, you should trust them. So other than some of that, um, what you might call vertical editing, where you're just sort of saying... You're spending too much time on, you know, the, the, the history of the bowling ball rather than your own story about the bowling ball. Other than that, there's not a lot of horizontal writing. For me, he- editing, I'm a little bit of copy editing, you know, line editing, fixing a typo, mm-hmm. you know, suggesting, uh, this, catching a word echo or something. But I don't do a lot of sort of trying to work on their voice or anything like that. I yeah. like to leave it alone.
2: Yeah, same. I mean, I think what we're going for is, I mean, we wouldn't be approaching these people if we didn't want their voice. Yeah. So. I was an editor for years, and I worked at magazines where there was an institutional voice, and you had to... But we don't have an institutional voice at Project Object. So, it's very rare that we have a real problem with a piece. That, like, oh, this really needs to be rethought. Mm -hmm. It's pretty friendly, and it's pretty low-key. And, it's you know, it has to be. As Josh has pointed out, we're paying them, you know, less than the cost of lunch for uh, these pieces. So... It goes back to the eternal lesson of being an editor, which is that you're the, the most important decision you make is which writer you choose. So if you choose the right writer, if you choose the right collaborator, you save yourself a lot of headaches.
3: Some of our collaborators, like for example, Lucy Santo, I've worked with over the years on this and other projects, are just yeah. unbelievable in their ability to turn in the exact perf- word perfect piece that you wouldn't dare touch a comma of, not because they wouldn't let you but just they're unbelievable at giving you just delivering every time i'm not i'm not one of those writers but um we definitely have our more than our fair share of them uh, that we've worked with in this process
1: i have to say i know one should never show favorites although it's okay for me to. you can't but i think lucy's piece is maybe my favorite like i can see that chair i can see that crate i like the whole story is like <laughs> lucy's very, just an
3: extraordinary writer yeah very clearly. um yeah, and some of our writers, some of my favorite writers that I've worked with over the years are people who didn't think of themselves as writers. They might be a designer, right? They might There's a smart, creative, talented person that I've encountered at a cocktail party. I know them in my life somehow, and I'm like, oh, you're a good storyteller. I like your voice just in our in our, mm-hmm. our dialogue. How about writing something for me? And they hem and haw, and they don't want to do it, and they're actually usually very, very good. They might have a few things like they don't know about, again, to go back to like word echoes, for example. Mm-hmm. They might have a few things like that they haven't learned because they didn't do it for a living. But usually um, that's very satisfying when you kind of discover a writer as well.
1: So the last of these kind of in the weeds questions, again, you've got 50 pieces, 50 essays about lost objects. Now, having read the book, I know it isn't repetitive, but it could be how given that, yes, you're finding writers whose voice you enjoy, who you, you know that they can, you know, do this assignment. But how do you avoid repetition?
3: Yeah, we do act as editors in the sense that when we, when we write to folks, we ask them to pitch us something. We don't just say, write the story and send it in and you're done. Um, we say, we'd love to have you be part of this process. If you have an idea, please let us know what your object is and kind of what it means to you. Yeah. yeah. So they're giving us a little bit of a hint. So that way, yes, if someone says, I want to write about my cat's ashes, and we say, oh, we already have a cat's ashes piece in this uh, series, then we, we have a reason to say no.
2: Yeah, and I don't remember this being as much an issue with lost objects, but I know that with significant objects, we, at some point, we were seeing enough versions of the same, like, a lot of people, so significant objects, a lot of people did, they were fictional stories about an object that had meaning, and the idea of, like, this belonged to my shitty ex, like, was done enough times that we would just say, like... Mm -hmm. Give us your general idea, but no more shitty X stories yeah. We're not doing that
3: anymore. Yep. Or no <laughs> mid-century pop culture toys, you know what I mean? Because yep. everybody thinks yep. those are cool.
1: No more Funko Pops, yeah.
3: Right. <laughs> uh, you're asking some good questions about the kind of behind the proscenium stuff, June, about how all this works. And I think a question that, in my mind, I would want to ask next is, why do people do it for you? If you're, if you're asking them yeah. to pitch you a story, yeah. if, you're asking them, if you're giving them very specific parameters, you're telling them what they can and can't do, and you're not paying them almost anything, as Rob said, less than a price of lunch, why would they do it? And mm-hmm. one thing that we were really shocked and delighted to discover on our first project together, Significant Objects, is that for many writers, especially anyone who's having any kind of struggling with writer's block at all, these are a fun prompt. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. so low-key. It's so low um, pressure. And it's short, right? And it's, uh, it's something that they, they can write about because it's literally like an object on your desk that we were asking you to write about. So there's something... It's kind of like in a Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I know you told me not to talk about philosophers, June, but <laughs> when Robert piercing talks about how he had a student at the University of Montana who was blocked writing, and he said, "Just go and look at the opera house in downtown Bozeman and start writing about the upper left brick on the facade." And the student came back with ten thousand amazing words about Bozeman, and uh, there's something to that. Um, the simplicity and like low stakes aspect of these that really help a lot of big name writers that we've worked with who have no reason to say yes to us say yes because it's something fun and easy about it for them.
2: It's a clean proposition of like if and but as I say, many people have said no, but if someone hasn't, like it will it will you either hit on something or you don't, and people will pretty quickly like say yeah, I got something that's perfect for this, mm-hmm. and then you've hooked them with the idea and they can't. You could almost charge them to uh, <laughs> follow up. Billion no. dollar idea. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm also curious about the illustrators because as somebody who isn't an illustrator and who, you know, I can't imagine how much of an effort that would be for me from that perspective, it feels like asking an illustrator to do something like it's not just on their desk or it's not just 450 words. Like they've got to draw something. Um Kind of have you found that responses from illustrators are different from responses from writers? I know you, as you said, you don't always work with illustrators, but did that strike you as different?
3: It's funny that you say that, June, because when I worked at the Boston Globe uh, on the ideas, Sunday ideas section, and I would sit in the office of the designer until late at night as he, as he was finishing things up, because I was the copy editor at first, so I was there to tweak things for him. And I learned at that time that um, we were paying authors, you know, let's say $500 for something that probably took them a week to write. And we were paying illustrators $500 for something that took them a day to write. Mm-hmm. So actually, and obviously some illustrators work on something for a week, I'm sure. But I was shocked to discover how much worse authors are paid than illustrators. So I think that you're asking that question from, from a point of view of a writer and an mm-hmm. editor as opposed to an illustrator. Yeah. I don't think it's as hard as as we might imagine. That sounds really mean, like yeah. I'm saying, that it's easy for what they yeah. do. It's hard what they yeah. do. People who are good at it really labor over it, I know. But I don't think it was as hard as you would imagine to get them to say yes to, the, mm-hmm. to it.
2: Josh just alienated our entire <laughs> illustrator pool.
1: And how did you match illustrators with writers? Um, was it writer-illustrator? Was it... Object illustrator, or was it, can I even say it, random?
3: I think we offered the illustrator, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but I think we offered the illustrators three stories, and with the names taken off, almost like a scholarly blind uh, Mm -hmm. experiment or something, we took the names off and we just said, here's three stories, which one would you like to illustrate?
2: Yeah, so it's the same thing where you're looking to give them what's what's inspiring you, um, what's hooking you, you're throwing bait out there, so
1: even though I don't know you guys, like some, you know, you can tell me (laughs) you're just wrong. But I just kind of see you as people who have found a way of making your living with a portfolio of projects, not through these object projects, Um, but you make your living by exploring your personal interests. And sometimes those are pretty esoteric. So I guess, do you agree with me? And then do you feel like there's a secret? Uh, you know, is there, I, is it that you're exploring questions that interest you? And if so, because that's something that we often get asked about, can you share sort of what it is that allows you to do that? Because we often get letters from readers like, I I just want to follow my interest, but I mm-hmm. can't, like, that doesn't pay the bills. Uh, so any tips that you have for our listeners?
3: Well, I mean, to be really honest, my Day job, being a commercial semiotician, I find it interesting and there's some things I like about it, but it's still a job for me. I don't love everything about it. It's not I'm not completely following my passion there, but it pays the bills and allows me the kind of time and bandwidth to do this other work. I did find that when I worked at the Boston Globe, which I loved, it was one of the favorite jobs I've ever had. That part of my brain that did reading and writing and editing was quite burned out by the end of every day. And when I came home in the evenings, I couldn't do it on my own. It was a very fallow period for me, Mm. creativity-wise. I couldn't do any of my own writing uh, when I worked at the Globe. So I do kind of like having a job that's not directly the same kind of stuff. And I also want to say that when it comes to creative projects, it is so much easier not to do them than to do them. As Rob was saying at at the top of this episode when he was talking about how he spent most of his time talking to his wife about significant objects rather than making that project happen. And I find that I am very, very good at not doing, you know, the things that I think are, would be a cool idea and that I want to do. And my big secret is finding a collaborator. And Rob is one of my great collaborators, but I have other collaborators that i work on other projects with as well. And, um, having that face and that voice and that person there that you're that you have, even if you don't have a deadline, even if anyone else is waiting for it, that person's waiting for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you don't want to let them down. So there's something about that to me that really makes it incredibly productive to have a collaborator. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I would just basically echo that last point. The relevant thing for what we're talking about to, that answers your question is that this is that this is what's good about if you're the theoretical listener that you're talking about, who's like think about uh whether there's someone in your world who you could collaborate with, and you don't have to have it's great as Josh says, the secret to that is that having someone else you're responsible to, having someone else you're having to answer to, having someone else who it feels like they're they're not an, exactly an authority figure, but you don't want to let them down so that's an interesting middle point right like it's not having a boss yeah. and the Last thing I want to say about that, I guess, is that I had a boss once who, uh, at a magazine, who who is his, his editor-in-chief of the magazine and his thing, and I was, a, you know, a senior editor in charge of a section, and his thing was like, 80% of what you do needs to be something I would have done. The other 20% is yours. So I think that's a good rule of thumb with dealing with a collaborator is, like, you don't have to be 100% in sync. So, you give each other, like you're mostly in sync, but I give Josh 20% to do, like, there's stuff that, like, I don't care about or I don't, maybe I don't even like, you know, I don't know. And I think he gives me the same leeway, but it get that's a lot of overlap.
3: Like, 80, 15%.
2: <laughs> that's a lot of overlap, though. And the point is that it gives you permission to, I always thought that 80, 20 thing was really smart because it allows you to get things done and, and, And make sure the other person is having a good time, too. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Here's a real nuts and bolts um, tip that uh, Rob was mentioning, something he learned from a former editor. So I had an editor at the Boston Globe named Gareth Cook who said to me once that if an editor and a writer only communicate by email, eventually they will despise each other. You have to talk on the phone and meet in person as well. And I find that to be really valuable advice, and I know that's, it's, that's kind of in the weed stuff again, but I find that um, whenever Rob and I have been just emailing each other for a few weeks or months, we just have to have a phone call, even if it's to shoot the breeze. Otherwise, you just start to feel like resentful of this person, these words that are coming out of your email and commanding you to do things.
1: Rob Walker, Josh Glenn, thank you so much for joining us on Working This Week.
2: Thank you so much, June. Thanks, June. It was a blast.
4: So I wanted to start off with a pretty basic question. Have you, June, ever worked like this the way that Rob and Josh do? Have you partnered up with someone to write? Do you find it easy or difficult to work with somebody else?
1: I have not. I think I'm (laughs) like too much of an only child or an introvert (laughs) or maybe even a misanthrope to do that kind of very close collaboration. However, I also think that even those of us who think of ourselves as like rugged individualists, we're actually collaborating all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, when we do this podcast, we do some things on our own. You know, we think of guests, we write our questions. But then we host Get Chatting and our producer Cameron is constantly offering feedback, making choices about what to keep and what to cut. He's framing the conversation when he comes up with a title. All of that is definitely collaboration. And, you know, it's a magazine, every single story, even a quick blog post involves collaborating with an editor, with colleagues, getting feedback on headlines, all of that. So very few of us are you know, often planets just doing our own thing. I want to hear what you think about this, though, because you actually work with a straight up writing partner who you do screenwriting Mm -hmm. with. How does that work? What's the hardest part of that relationship?
4: I'm going to answer that question. But first, I want to say, are you an only child?
1: I am indeed. Are Me you? Me
4: too. Yeah, that's well,
1: why I wanted the best. to point
4: it out. Because I feel like whenever you meet someone else who is also an only child, it's like, oh, same. Like, And then it's a special or bond. Absolutely. Special is not a word, but you get what I mean. I totally do. Anyway, though, to get back to your question, I may have said this before, but I'm not sure. I like to compare it to my experiences with music where I competed um, in solo piano when I was training in piano, and I've also played uh, in orchestra and stuff. And they're very different experiences where, obviously, when I'm playing solo piano, all the feedback that comes back is only for me, but also... It was so much more nerve wracking of a process for me. Like, <laughs> as I was playing during competitions, like my hands and my legs would shake as I was pedaling, and it was awful. Oh my god! But playing in an orchestra, it can still sometimes be nerve wracking because, like, you'll get solos and stuff. But it's so much—you just feel so much more supported and so much more at ease because there's so many other people around you making sure that everything's going smoothly. Um, That said, it's like a little bit of both like with a writing partner, because obviously like I'm only working with that one partner. It's not like it's 30 of us writers all making one thing, Um, at least not right now anyway. And there's good things and there's bad things about it. The good thing is like you automatically have someone there that you can talk your ideas through with. Um, But the the hard thing is like figuring out how to mesh your working styles, especially if they are different. Like some, I'm sure there are some writing partners out there where you start off on the same page just immediately and you mesh so perfectly. That was not really the case for me. Like we were, I think we worked together really well, but it took a lot of trial and error. And I think still Mm -hmm. sort of does to figure out like, what will make us both happy and feel like we're both um, really contributing to a project.
1: Interesting. You do make me want to try that, though. You should. <laughs> Just... I
4: mean, it's pretty low stakes, I think. Yes. So. Yeah. so I also found it so funny that Rob said that he personally is bad at getting things done if they don't have deadlines. Are you similarly motivated or unmotivated? And how do you make sure to get things done?
1: This is something that has changed, like, 100% for me as I've gotten older. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know what my problem was, but in my 20s, and I will admit into my mid 30s, <laughs> it used to be that attaching a deadline would pretty much decrease my chances <laughs> of successfully completing a task, or I'd use the deadline as the point when I would start on that task. <laughs> and this was just. Terrible. I mean, I do not recommend this. There is nothing good about it. It was fully, completely, utterly dysfunctional. And I think it was only when I started working at Slate, which thank God I got the job given that track record, (laughs) that A, my entire job was related to meeting deadlines and getting other people to make their deadlines. Mm -hmm. And B, my boss just kind of whipped me into shape. And that was when I finally stop that particular method of self-sabotaging <laughs> so first of all thank you Lakshma Krishnan you shouldn't have had to fix me but I'm very glad you did uh, <laughs> because my attitude to work was so much better afterward you know now I am fully transformed I will absolutely invent deadlines and targets because now that's what gets me to my desk every morning are you a deadline-oriented person
4: I think I'm very much deadline oriented. I'm very much like a goody two shoes, which I think (laughs) I've also mentioned on the show before where like I have a very hard time breaking rules. (laughs) Um, So I pride myself on I'm pretty sure never having missed a deadline. Whoa. And it's weird that like, there's only like one case that I had to recently that I can think of that I had to ask for an extension. And it was because like something about the assignment changed. But I don't know like it's just sort of comforting to have a deadline because then you know when you'll be done with it ideally um and it's also this is sort of something that I came around to in college where I was like it's gonna get done by that point like uh, sometimes maybe I'll have to stay up to like 3 a.m but it's gonna get done and then it's gonna be over so that's like all the stress that I really have to like Put on myself about it. So
1: totally. I mean, that last yeah. bit is the key. Then it will be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the <series laughs> to it, it's gonna be done. Why? You know, nobody enjoys. I don't think that feeling of like this thing is hanging over me. No, I can't do anything else. I can't focus on anything else. I can't relax because I can't wish it away. It won't mm-hmm. go away. It's just it's a terrible way of living.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're all we're all, all in it. subject to it. <laughs> To pivot a little bit, it was interesting to hear Rob and Josh's reasons for approaching each other in the first place and why they wanted to work together. Um, you've said that you haven't really worked like with a partner or anything, but you've been in a managerial position. So when you're trying to find someone to work with, when, whether it's to kind of work together on a more kind of granular level or assign them something, what kinds of things are you looking for?
1: The key, I think, is it's exactly what Rob said, which is that the most important step is who you ask, uh, you -hmm. know, whether that's to get a piece of work done or, you know, to find a collaborator. And I think the most important ingredient in any project is variety. You know, you don't want to have 50 versions of the same story, Mm -hmm. or certainly you don't want them to seem like the same story. So the finding people with different perspectives, people who write in different styles. I remember when I edited Christopher Hitchens, Mm -hmm. I would get just so many pitches from people, actually, let me be more precise there young men who <laughs> <laughs> consciously or not were, you know, serving knockoff hitch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I personally do enjoy that style of writing. Your mileage may vary, but even if it's the thing that you love the most, a little goes a long way. You don't need more than one of those. And I think that's actually probably a good rule of thumb for all things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you want a variety of angles. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the interview, one of my favorite pieces in lost objects was by Lucy Sant, and, you know, she's a great writer and she conveyed so much in 500 words, but also she didn't overthink, you know, the assignment. She didn't overthink the choice of object. It was a chair that had been significant to her family. But at the same time, you don't want to read about 50 family heirlooms that were lost. And I keep saying, you don't want 50 X's. But again, those <laughs> concepts also apply to putting together a magazine or a podcast mm-hmm. or a team. You need to have a consistent level of quality to be consistently interesting. And I always want to read or hear stylish prose but it shouldn't read or sound like everything was written by the same person. Mm -hmm. What would you add to that? Or do you want to argue with any of that?
4: No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's just so many different factors at play, depending on what you're gathering people for. Like, for instance, like, I've heard stories about, like, people putting together writers' rooms where it's, like, depending on the subject of the show, you're not necessarily just looking for someone who's written in that genre before, but someone who has expertise with the material, for instance, and isn't necessarily coming at it from a TV writing angle. Yeah. Um, and then, like, when you're trying to find someone to work creatively with on, I guess, a more partner-to-partner level, I think there's sort of two approaches. One is... Making sure that you have similar interests. So kind of the drier side of things. And then there's the approach of making sure that you guys' style works together regardless of like genre or tone, which is kind of the more like emotional connection, I yeah. guess. Yeah. So it all depends on the project, which is yeah. I guess sort of a non answer at the end of the day. But it's you'll know you'll feel it when you get there. You know? There we go. There we go. That's definitely <laughs> true. So Rob and Josh also talk about what I guess, like jumping off of what we've just talked about, Rob mm. and Josh talk about what they're bad at, that the other person's good at. Yeah. And I want to ask you, June, what would you say that you're bad at? For, oh. So if you were going to create your perfect working partner, what would they have to be good at?
1: Karen, it sounds like you really just want me to reveal my creative weaknesses. I'm, <laughs> I'm very, very glad that I'm not going to be applying for any job soon. Um I think that the thing that I feel worst about, like Mm -hmm. whether or not that is my biggest weakness, is the thing that I'm most conscious of, is that I think I'm a settler. Like
2: Mm. I
1: will say, okay, that's good enough. Just a tiny bit before the work is as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really tricky thing to do. It's not that you should just keep working and working and working until a piece of work is perfect because that will never happen. And I, I really believe that in a professional context, you sometimes have to say something, you know, kind of as crass as, you know, this is supposed to take X hours of mm-hmm. my time or X dollars of my time. I have now met that criterion and the work is complete. You know, the mm-hmm. article is filed or the podcast is edited or whatever the task is, so it's done. But because I also feel very strongly that I have this flaw I always want to work with someone who I trust will tell me the truth about whether Mm -hmm. they think it's done or if maybe a little bit more work will really make a difference. And as an editor, I think I'm very good with voice, but not so good with structure. I am Mm. not one of those editors who moves sections around. I just don't have that vision unless it's really obvious and egregious. So (laughs) I need somebody who's got those skills. Mm -hmm. So, as we said before, you actually do have a writing partner. Can you get granular about your individual strengths and weaknesses and how you complement each other?
4: I think on a very, very broad level, he tends to lean more comedy and I tend to lean more drama. So there's a very kind of basic difference there. But then also in our working styles, um, he tends to be more of a sort of like, I will throw everything at the wall, I will list all of my ideas right now, whereas I tend to have a much more, I guess, type A kind of approach to work where I'm like, I like to have like a layout, a plan, and I like (laughs) to get one thing done at a time and work down the ladder.
1: (laughs) Whoa, go. That sounds a really perfect combination.
4: It's been good so far, ripe for conflict sometimes, but also that's good for art sometimes too. I'm not, to be clear, I'm not saying that conflict leads to art. (laughs) Right, right. But you get what I mean. I do. Well, that's it for today's show. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a wall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working
1: plus. Thank you to Rob Walker and Josh Glenn and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is an amazing collaborator. Mm -hmm. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with puzzle designer Lennon Aximet. Until then, get back to work!
0: Okay, round two. Name
2: something that's not boring.